This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. This morning's message is titled Passover versus Easter. There is so much put around this event to kind of give it, for the church anyway, is to give it a holy day type of an event. And let's just pretend that it really is a holy day event for the uh, traditional church. Where in the world did we get the idea of including an Easter bunny, an Easter baskets, and Easter eggs? I mean, your average Christian nowadays knows that Easter eggs are beyond pagan. They were actually very satanic. And you think about how in the world did we get all of these satanic traditions inside the church on what most Christians would classify as a very special day. How'd that happen? You know, your average Christian, they don't really, they could, they'll say, yeah, I heard that Easter eggs are pagan. I heard that the Easter bunny is symbolic for, you know, an antichrist. And I heard that, you know, they'll say, I've heard these things through history, but for some reason it doesn't really bother them when it's in the church. This is evidence of what we have done to the gatherings of the body of Christ. It has even affected some of the, the men who wrote translations of the Word of God, and I'm going to show you. Thankfully, there was a certain group that caught it and had it removed immediately, but there's a certain translation that refuses to remove it. Christmas is the same thing, right? I mean, Santa Claus is a pope, and that's been proven historically. You think it's Saint Nick, you know, that somehow gained a little too much weight. And No, the original Santa Claus was a pope. And many of the traditions that the Roman state church adopted to bring into the church was supposedly supposed to win those pagans into the Catholic church. If I showed you the true history of the Christian church, you're going to find something rather significant. That little over 80% of all church history is speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. They're not speaking of the underground church that has survived through the catacombs and has survived through, you know, persecution and distress and difficulties that is never documented for some reason in church history. Most of church history is spoken about the actual Roman state church. Most of your paintings of Christ are from the Roman state church and so forth and so on. Any resident historian, wannabe historian, understands what I just said is absolute truth. It doesn't take a lot to figure out what's behind certain traditions. Traditions initially started by pagans because they believed that life change comes from the external to the internal. So you worship a rock, you worship the sun, you worship clouds, you worship angels, you worship something externally 
which God clearly calls a what? An idol. They worship that so they can have external change to internal change. So if they keep this idol happy and clean and purified and, and untouched, somehow that they will have change in their own life. And there's a particular church in church history that mastered that art. Adopt the external into the church, mix it all up, the people will never know. And then when people are led by God to do true, accurate, biblical research on traditions, like Easter, if the Christian, the indwelt Christian, becomes very alarmed and immediately removes those externals from their life, it is evidence of life within them. If they just keep it all mixed up like a, like a milkshake, it is evidence of something else. The Passover, this has happened to. The Passover versus Easter. If you mention to most Christians about the Passover, you guys tell me what are they going to associate it with. They may think about the Ten Commandments movie and how they had to put the, the blood over the, over the doorpost and on the sides and the three blood spots is, is absolutely critical when it comes to symbols and there's all things that they post the Jewish people post on their doorpost to this very day and what's in that little glass tube the Torah Ten Commandments which you guys have already been shown in pictorial Hebrew is the what is top it's the cross they're literally putting the cross on the doorpost and before they enter that house they touch it oftentimes to their mouth and they go into the door they're touching the cross this is clear back from the earliest days of Passover every one of these tiny little symbols that God carefully put into the Passover the very first Passover are symbolic and alive and well today The Passover is the Old Testament act of celebrating God's liberation that came before his people were set free. A lot of people think of the Passover as the act of Old Testament salvation. It is not. You cannot have salvation unless there is the letting of blood. This is God saying to his people, I am about to set you free. So, that blood that was put over the doorpost when that angel of death, so to speak, came by that door, it wasn't that he couldn't go into that door. It was that blood repels oppression. That's why in your prayers you oftentimes pray in the blood and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just simply seeing the blood of Christ literally repels evil forces that are around you. Do you understand that this blood was so holy that oppression, death, could not even get close to it? And we go through our monthly communions 
hopefully not having that aftertaste of the grape juice in our mouth the rest of the day. We don't understand the true meaning and purpose and power of what God demonstrated in that first Passover that now has become the Passover of the Great Communion. So number one, the death of all firstborn humans and animals during the time of the ten plagues, the lamb to the place of the firstborn, that lamb was the firstborn. Pure lamb. And when that lamb was sacrificed, which was already a part of the customs and traditions of the Hebrew people, that lamb's blood now became the first and the final symbol of cleansing. You see, those people couldn't even walk back out of that door unless they walked through that cleansing. They couldn't even walk through the dry bed of the Red Sea, which was going to happen very soon, unless they were cleansed. This cleansing moment is a before the actual moment of salvation. Number two, the celebration of their soon-to-be freedom from Egypt, and that Egypt is symbolic to this very day as being unsaved. And they're in bondage to this not only as slaves themselves, they willingly enslave themselves to these Easter satanic traditions. I mean, I wish I had the time to tell you the story of Easter. It would sicken you of where it came from. And it's in our churches. Like it's some kind of special holy event. And people just don't uh, respond anymore to acute, accurate truth revealing what has happened to the church. Once freed from slavery, the Israelites were to have a feast in remembrance of this act of grace. You need an act of grace shortly before an act of salvation. You see, D.K. would never have fallen on his face and repented unless he had this moment of being overwhelmed by God's grace. That's Passover. Salvation is the Red Sea. This Passover is the moment of grace that drops you to your knees to receive that transformation. Finally, number four is it sets them up for salvation. And as I just said, grace comes right before salvation. Here's a very, very quick, brief paragraph on the history of Easter. The 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is March or April, is one of the most important dates of all Bible history. It marked the time of Passover from which the Israelites began their exodus from bondage, Egypt. And centuries later, the time of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who we call the Lamb of God, the final Lamb. The early Christian church continued to observe Passover, the early Christian church. 
continued in the Passover traditions. Jesus himself practiced a Passover as they were all gathered around that night. The early church continued to observe Passover on the 14th of Nisan as Jesus Christ uh, did himself all through his life until, listen carefully, until the Roman festival of Easter of which many Christians today are often shocked to learn was named after the Babylonian idol Estar and later was called Estar. The Anglo-Saxon goddess of light is what it really means was officially enforced upon the indwelt Christians forcing allegiance to the Roman state church which is who we call Catholics today. The Easter of Acts 12.4 in King James Version was one of the many influences of the writing of this translation. It should have been translated Passover as was the case in the accuracy of the New American Version. Here it is, King James. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him them over to the soldiers to keep him, and intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. That is Acts 12.4 in King James. New American is, he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. That is one of many references that are in the King James that were heavily influenced by keeping the Roman state church intact when that translation was being written. We forget, in fact most of the time we don't even have the knowledge to forget, of how there is a global religion that is moving its way through each generation that is very, very concerned about keeping their traditions intact, even with Bible translations. The group that put together the New American is just one of, obviously, a later translator that said, we will not have this influence on our Bible. Some of the earlier ones that were translated after King James clearly used the term Passover. I know this is just a brief snapshot look at exactly what happened, but that brief technique you are reading right now is what was used on the seven churches. Remember when you heard me talking about Deacon Nicholas? And how he was going through the seven churches? His name is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. You don't have to get into added history books to see this. And he believed that the people in all seven of the churches needed to have a priest between them and God. The Roman state church was a church that was formed by a lot of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Their garb that they wear is almost identical. Uh, the Roman state church made it more colorful. But a lot of the, the traditions that you saw in the synagogue with the high priest was literally brought into the Roman state church. And then many doctrines were written that you and I obviously do not support today.
The whole tearing down the temple was a part of getting these people to let go of this holy hill and put their focus on the Roman state church. The whole Constantine thing, I could tell you facts about that probably shock you a little bit. He wasn't the Christian indwelt leader that we've been told that he was. They were building the Roman state church. And they were trying to influence these seven churches. And they did get six of them influenced. And one said that they will not buckle. They were immovable until 1928. Until the Turkish government did a very famous genocide. 1928. The Church of Philadelphia was alive that long. John Calvin and many other ministries are direct descendants from the ministry and influence of the Church of Philadelphia. Where did the people end up? Well, the, the over a million people that tried to get across the desert because the country of Armenia said that they would receive these Christians. And that's why today the country of Armenia claims to be the father of the Christian church. But not very many got through that desert. They made them walk. And there was a great genocide. 1928. The other six churches were completely dominated by the Roman state church. They consumed them. And they brought them into this Roman state church. And that is basically the plan that you see with the Roman state church to this very hour. They consume a culture. They consume their idols. They consume their theology. They consume all that and they bring it into the church and they try to Christianize it and make it nominal so that people don't fight it anymore. So 70 years after Christ died marked a defining moment in the history of Judaism. The Roman armies destroyed the temple in order to stop the threat of the up-and-coming Roman state church, Catholicism. God used this offense to cause the indwelt Christians to transfer their temple beliefs from a building to the human body. And the Catholic Church did the exact opposite. They got the indwelt believers to transfer their allegiance to a building. They had to build fancy buildings. They, everything became external. Whereas the true indwelt believers who were not to be a part of this destroying the temple so this transition and loyalty could take place, they knew what Paul and Peter and John and others were teaching is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God obviously was even in control of the temple being destroyed. What was to be an external act was now today to become an internal reminder of what has been done. I have a very dear friend that is a converted Roman Catholic priest, a Jesuit priest, and he has been teaching the exchange life as probably as long as I can remember. He still believes when you drink the juice it gets converted to blood as it's going down your throat. And that is an exchange life teacher and counselor who used to be a Catholic, do not tell me that they don't have power over human souls. It stays in them. This, these doctrines stay in them. This is simply to be a beautiful, do this in remembrance of him, me. This juice is not going to turn to blood when you drink it. He also believed that this bread 
turns to the body of Christ as you swallow it. Doctrines, once they're put inside of a child's mind, it is very, very, very difficult to free them after that. Train a child up in the way they should go. Because when they get old, they will not part from it. We'll say it the other way. Train a child up in the way they should not go. When they get old, they're going to have a tough time parting from it. Traditions is what works, folks. My dear friend who I love dearly and believe he is a true and well believer who believes what I just told you, that's in him as standardized doctrine because of tradition has a power over humans. That's why there's so many idols in the world. And we all have struggles with them. All of us. Externals are very powerful. Because Satan is a god of the external. God is a god of the internal. So there you got it. You have it being spelled out for us right here. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You see that that old leaven, old nature, cannot be shared with the Holy Spirit. There has to be the old leaven taken out so the new can be put in. Now at salvation it all happens in split seconds but see in the Old Testament they were phases. The plagues led to the final sacrifice of the lamb which led to blood which led to a night of horror and darkness which led to them coming out through those doors that have been cleansed which led them into being set free. Being backed into the Red Sea, Moses puts his stick, his staff in the water, God parts the Red Sea, they all walk through in dry land, they get up on the other side of the Red Sea, and then God closes the water upon the enemy. With the enemy, water is always used to chaos. Remember the Hebrew word? For water, mem, chaos, destroys. How did God cleanse the earth? He destroyed it through the flood. So the water is either going to be used for salvation or for chaos in a person's life. Let's start walking through our Passover communion. The woman of the house, and today I'm going to use Jane as that woman of the house, because Typically this was not done in a building like this. It was done in your home. So the woman of the house would light the candles to mark the commencement of this sacred time. So Jane, you want to come and, and light our communion candle. Which is also where we get the idea of the communion candle at weddings. It's one candle. Usually goes from, at a wedding it goes from two candles to one. But this is where it comes from. Under the Lord's Supper, the lighting of the communion candle, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I will tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And that is that fourth cup. This is being referenced when he's actually on the third cup. So we come back over here, and the head of the home would stand raise the first cup of sanctification 
and bless it. Please pray with me. Father, I want to take this cup of sanctification, the blood that is actually poured into this cup of sanctification, and I pray, Father God, you would bless our minds and all those who are listening, wherever they're at, I pray that they would understand that the first element of the blood of Jesus Christ is sanctification. And I pray, Father God, a blessing upon every mind who is listening so that they too may understand that we first must understand the sanctification in our lives that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Next we have coming up, as everyone would ready themselves, a leader would wash his hands, uh, plated with salted water, which is symbolic for the tears. And I know last time we only had a couple volunteers step up to taste the bitter herb and the salt water. Today we're all going to do it. If you've had a born again experience. And it should remind you of the bitter times that they went through and the bitter times you have gone through. And as it is dipped into the salt is the tears that were shed by these people through the hardship of getting to this beautiful moment of being free. And I think we have gained heaven's attention by doing a Passover communion. This is not done like rote prayer, like praying over your meal before you eat. This is, we're serious about this. We want to taste the bitter herb and go, I've had this bitterness in my mouth before. And taste the salt and go, I have wept over my own sins. That's what this is for. The leader took the three pieces of matzo bread and place in a bag that had three compartments. This little bag has got three compartments in it. And as we talked about the last time, is that the uh, three compartments are symbolic for what? The Trinity. God the Father has his portion, and God the Son gets the largest portion, and then the Holy Spirit. And under God the Son, He gives, His life is torn in half. Half is given. If you remember, according to the doctrines that we talked about, it's usually hidden behind a pillow somewhere in the house, and the children are released to find it. The child that finds this half of the matzo bread, the unleavened bread, is to receive a coin which is the illustration in the New Testament of the coin in the fish's mouth. It's a payment that needs to be made for that half of the bread, the body of Christ. And we don't have to pay it. It's already been paid. The leader pays it. Now, to be perfectly blunt, the um, portion in the middle, which was the largest portion, the center portion given to Jesus Christ, is now broken in half for the purpose of the bride of Christ to partake and share in the body of Christ. The lady of the house lights the, the uh, 
light of eternity. That's what the candle is symbolic for, is the light of Christ, the light of eternity. And then all of us readied ourselves. The leader washed his hands. I washed my hands, then plated the salt water. Tears was passed around for all to dip the bitter herb into the tears and then to eat. And then the leader took three pieces of the matzo bread and placed them in a bag that had three compartments. The middle piece was taken out, torn in half. One goes back in and the other is hidden under a pillow for children to seek to find. And this is where the whole concept of Easter of finding the eggs that were hidden in the yard. That's where it came from. They mixed it in with this Istar, paganist, goddess. But just so you understand, well, that's where it came from. When a child finds it, the leader pays for it. And at the end of the service, the leader reveals the piece of bread uh, to the family if it was not found. Now over here on the Christ side is that we come as children to the Lord. We are rewarded when we uh, find eternal life which it's actually before us the whole time. And then the hidden piece symbolizes the very life of Christ that is tucked away and hidden for the very perfect moment it is to be found by the bride of Christ. And I know that all of creation, all of us are children of God because he created us, but this is specifically addressing the bride of Christ who are the daughters of of God the Father. We're a part of a very special internal family structure. And then the, uh, uh, I have no clue how to pronounce this, Afakomen. Forgive me for those of you who understand how this is pronounced. No, I didn't. I probably slaughtered the word. But it's hidden, symbolizing Christ being hidden in the tomb for three days and then obviously brought out. So then, next step, the leader took the second cup, which is the plagues, and blessed it. A sip was taken after the telling uh, of the four questions, which we will do in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the plagues that you allowed in the, the Hebrew children's lives in and around and we also want to thank you, God, for how you used the plagues to actually loosen the grip of the enemy. Father, there's stuff that we have seen in our lives that uh, look and sound and act a lot like plagues. And we just thank you, God, that you are using them actually against the enemy but to free us. And I thank you, God, for this portion of the blood that it is for a strict purpose of releasing the grip that the enemy has in our lives. So we thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood for this very reason in Christ's name. Jesus tells the story of his body, blood, in his journey to the cross. And the interesting thing is, folks, is hardly any of those disciples got it. Peter's a classic example. He betrays Christ three times. It matches exactly what Christ said he was going to do. He went into despair, went back to fishing, and, it, and that's exactly where Jesus himself went to bring finality of the cross to Peter's life. Peter became more committed to the power of the cross. 
than almost any of the other disciples. He was, com he was compassionate. He was passionate. He was immovable. And nobody could budge this guy. Thus resulting in him and Paul not getting along so well. They were both very immovable in what God told them. When the truth of the fact is, it's what the two of those two were immovable about, which fulfills the gospel, the Jewish and the Gentiles. Peter got kind of overly hung up on the Jewish thing, and Paul kind of became quite immovable with the Gentile thing. It was all part of the plan. Here's the four telling questions. On all nights we may eat either leaven or unleavened bread, but on this night only unleavened bread. Why is this night different from all other nights, children of God? But what's the significance about leaven versus unleavened again? This is the night in which the statement is being made that in spite of your sins, God is going to pass over your sinful condition. Even though you deserve these plagues that are about to come, God is going to pass over. It's an act of grace. Number two, on all other nights we eat all kinds of herbs. But on this night we eat bitter herbs. Why is it that on why is this night different from all other nights? It's kind of like a review of what we just went through. Bitter herbs are symbolic for what? Your bitter experiences. Okay? On all other nights we do not dip our vegetables, but on this night we dip them in salt water. Why is this night so different? Why do we dip our herbs into salt water. We take our bitterness and our tears and we are actually commanded by God to embrace those trials. Not to reject them, not to act like it's not bothering us. People who do not embrace their trials, their tears, their bitterness, do not get the full richness out of what God is doing with them. So we taste them to embrace them. That's why this night is different. Number four, on all other, all other nights we eat either uh, sitting or reclining. But on this night we eat only reclining. And that's why in Jesus' time they were reclining at the table. You see the Catholic picture of they're all lined up in chairs and then Jesus is in the middle. Of course looking like a pope, but... Jesus is in the middle and everything looks so perfect and blah, blah, blah. Bad representation. That was a mixture of two things that they were putting into that painting. And the truth is they were all lounging. Their feet were laid out. They were very, very relaxed. They were doing, as Hebrew 4 says, they were laboring to rest. It is finished. It is done. There's no formality about it. Sitting up a chair with all the proper silverware. This was very relaxed. Symbolizing laboring to rest. If you are to labor, labor in this. Labor in your rest. It is finished. 
Someone read for us Psalms 113, verses 1 through 9. You can read it from the screen or from your Bible. And again, the body of Christ says, praise the Lord. Did you uh, pick out anything in this passage that's just a tad bit different than what is in the 113 passage about the type of water is being parted? The Red Sea is symbolic of salvation. The Jordan is symbolic of identity in Christ. These, these are the scriptures that are recited by Jewish people for centuries. Beyond centuries. They don't even understand what they're saying. They're literally proclaiming the two waters that God parts. Salvation and identity in Christ. They're speaking of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. They're literally right there in understanding the great Messiah. But they do not believe He has come yet. Unless they're Messianic Jews. You may be seated. All washed their hands once again. And then the leader took the matzo bread and broke them into pieces. The leader dipped the bread into a mixture of... Uh, the leader dipped the bread into a mixture of bitter herbs and distributed them uh, to the members and they ate. And I am going to uh, save that for our communion time. On the Lord's Supper side it says, This is when Jesus took a piece of bread, dipped it into the cup of blood, which we're going to do in a moment, and revealed, it, uh, and revealed who his betrayer was. There's something uh, quite interesting that is happening in this event with Jesus Christ is this is the most intimate moment that they have had with Jesus yet. And this is the time he actually reveals the one who betrays him. And so through intimacy, even Jesus was demonstrating he was not going to fake it. He was going to reveal the one who is, as Jesus classified him, is of Satan. And then when the meal was finished, no one ate any other food. Instead, the leader poured the third cup, which is redemption. Poured the third cup. A blessing is offered, and all drank from the third cup. And as you uh, know, we are going to be applying, dipping the body of Christ in this blood, into this wine, which is really juice. And um, it will be the symbol of the blood of Christ and the body that was broken of Christ and how it provides each of us the final redemption. Let's pray. Father, to be redeemed, and I know that in my prayer time with you, um, you almost always say, uh, Stephen, the redeemed, and God, that is the case of every indwelt believer. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I pray a blessing, Father, upon this cup. And as we use it in a couple moments, may we soberly understand and be able to embrace, Father, how the, your body was broke, your son's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we can have absolute, pure redemption in Christ's name. Amen.
On the New Testament, New Covenant side, we have after the meal, Jesus got up, took the matzah bread and said, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's Luke 22:19. Then he continued with the third cup. He blessed it and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. And then once everyone drank the third cup, they recited the second part of the halah, and, and, and that's Psalms 115 through 118. I would challenge all of you to review that sometime over the next couple days. And that was considered the end of the Seder. On the New Covenant side, Jesus and the disciples finished the Lord's Supper. The book of Matthew tells us, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Matthew 26.30 Jesus did not drink the fourth cup, which was also poured. So Jesus' blood was put into those, those four cups, and Jesus would not drink from the fourth cup. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you, with you, with you in my Father's kingdom. The last cup of the Passover will be drunk at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that will be a formal dinner. It will not be reclined. So, it's not just the first coming of Christ that teaches us everything. It is the second coming of Christ with the first coming of Christ and the Old Testament into readying us and preparing us for the Passover communion. And it's not even done. It's not finished. Not the four cups. We're up to the third cup right now. Which is what we're going to do now. And the fourth cup is being held when Christ takes the first sip. When he takes that first sip and passes it to the entire body of Christ, then the Passover communion will be complete. And whether we'll do this in remembrance of him in heaven, probably so. But the four cups will be completed. This is the Psalm 115 verses 1 through 8 that has special meaning for what we're about to do. And it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. Their work of man's hands. They have months, but they, but they cannot speak. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them 
O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron. Nice name. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Nice name. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, makers of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to his sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. And the body said, Praise the Lord. The candle has been lit, signifying the light of Christ. The cup of sanctification has been blessed and tasted. The hands of the leader have been washed. The salt water and bitter herbs have been tasted. The matzo bread has been prepared. The story has been told. The second cup, which is the plague, has been blessed and tasted. The second washing has occurred. The matzo has been broken into pieces. The third cup, which is redemption, has been blessed and readied. The fourth cup will, will not be touched until the wedding feast. Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events, and we will work to keep the focus on God Jesus Christ and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a Bible, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.